On behalf of RBCS and Software Test Professionals, welcome to this webinar on Agile Risk-Based Testing. I'm Rex Black, President of RBCS, a worldwide testing and quality assurance firm serving clients ranging from small startups to Fortune 20 global enterprises. Since 1994, RBCS has delivered insight and confidence to hundreds of clients around the world. Our team of international consultants deliver customized training, consulting, and outsourcing services for companies that are looking to improve their test and quality assurance practices. I'm the author of 12 books on software testing, including the bestseller Managing the Testing Process and four books on the ISTQD program. RBCS is presenting this webinar in partnership with Software Test Professionals. Check out their website at www.softwaretestpro.com. And special mention, I was at their conference last week, STPCon in Denver. It was great. Um, saw some familiar faces there and met some new people. It was very nice. So I hope to see uh, some of you at uh, the upcoming STPCon in San Diego next year. Attendance at today's webinar earns PMI PDUs. I would like to thank Morali Guthua for reviewing the materials for PDU status and, as always, for making very valuable suggestions. Attendees will receive an email telling them how to claim the PDUs, including the PDU code. PDUs are available for live webinar attendance only. Before we start the presentation, a couple of housekeeping notes. If you have any questions or comments during the course of the webinar, please feel free to submit them throughout the presentation via your webinar interface, but please note they are answered only at the end. There is no need to ask for presentation copies, though someone surely will, as the presentation is on the web at www.rbcs-us.com. Navigate to the Resources tab in the upper middle, and from there to the Basic Library, and you will find them. By attending this webinar, you were automatically registered for the free e-learning drawing. Check your email over the next couple days and watch that spam filter. Hope you enjoy this free webinar from RBCS. We do these free webinars as a service to the software testing community because at RBCS we are a not-just-for-profit company. Okay, so today we will be looking at how to apply risk-based testing in Agile um, life cycles. Something a lot of our clients do is practice risk-based testing, but they uh, often have problems um, when they've gone to um, agile projects. We're continuing to do that because the um, order in which things happen gets a little bit uh, modified. Um, but it is actually primarily a sequencing issue, and um, you can get all of the benefits um, of risk-based testing throughout the, the entire test process from planning and analysis all the way through to execution and results reporting. Um, just a matter of uh, figuring out how to um, how to fit it in in the right places uh, in the process. So let me show you how to make this work. Okay, so in this graphic, let me... Um, Get the spotlight up, and hopefully, hopefully will work. Uh, each iteration or sprint, and sprint would be if you were following the um, Scrum um, approach, which um, a lot of our clients, I don't, I'd say most of our clients that are following Agile are following some variant of Scrum. So you get <clears throat> each iteration or sprint shown here, these kind of loopy looking things where the programmer writes code, 
code ideally goes through a code review. Um, it uh, goes through a unit test, though sometimes the unit test would precede the code review or be even in parallel with the creation of the code if they're using something like test driven development. And then uh, there's a feature verification test um, using something like acceptance test driven development, uh, development or behavior driven development, uh, something to verify that the um, acceptance criteria are met. And then ultimately there is an acceptance test by the business stakeholder, usually some sort of demo where the business stakeholder sees it work and, and effectively validates the uh, uh, implementation of the user story, uh, user story being the agile name for a requirement. Um, and as the code is being built, it's constantly being um, integrated into the continuous integration framework. Most of our clients are using something like Hudson, Jenkins, or something along those lines now. Um, now, the uh, project consists of a sequence of these sprints. Um, the project can basically end at any point. Um, we might decide, okay, we've actually built enough now. We don't need to continue this. We can just deliver it to the customer now. Or some of our clients, they are delivering continuously, um, and some of our clients are actually doing a mix of uh, delivering at the end of every sprint for some of their stuff, like their web-based stuff, and for other kind of enterprise applications, they go through a number of uh, sprints before they actually um, uh, push something out into production. So it kind of depends on how, how the organization wants to do that. Now, um, in terms of uh, what risk-based testing does here in the life cycle is um, the at the beginning of each sprint, um, you're going to do a quality risk analysis based on the content of that sprint. Um, so as part of going through the user stories um, and um, cleaning up the user stories, refining the user stories for that sprint, um, prior to doing the estimation, which is something I'll get right back to, um, we're going to go and, and do a uh, risk analysis on the uh, the content of the sprint, uh, primarily based on the user stories. So it's important to remember that there are some um, non-functional risks that might be um, I might transcend, as it were, the uh, any, any one user story. Um, security and performance and reliability can be like this. That, they, that there are uh, risks which are um, more more systemic, more emergent from the entire system rather than uh, uh, associated with a single user story. So we're going to do that quality risk analysis uh, during the uh, sprint planning. Um, again, as part of going through the user stories prior to the estimation. Um, and uh, then after the estimation is done and we've decided on what actually is going to be the content of the user story, um, then we have to uh, um, design and implement the test to cover the risks, which is, which is typical. I mean, this happens in risk-based testing for uh, traditional sequential lifecycle models as well. The thing that's a little different here is that we're going to need the developers to create the features in the order of risk um, to the extent that they can. Now, the reason for this is remember that in risk-based testing, we want to run the higher risk tests first. Well, 
in a sequential life cycle model, if we're talking about system tests, since you wait until your feature complete before you start system test, um, I can run the test in whatever order I want as a test manager, and, and it does, has nothing to do with the order in which the developers created them. Um, in Agile, since I'm going to start my system testing of the user stories that have been implemented, uh, as soon as those are delivered to me um, in, in, the, in the sprint, then in order to run the test in risk order, the user stories have to be built in risk order. Now, this isn't as disruptive as it might sound because, of course, the user stories are prioritized, um, or at least they should be, best practices that they would be, and um, priority is going to influence the uh, order of implementation anyway, and priority is also going to um, have a strong impact on the um, impact rating in, in the uh, risk-based testing analysis and the quality risk analysis. So it's not a dramatic um, deviation that's being proposed here, but you do have to make sure that the developers are on board to build things in this order. And um, then in terms of your automated uh, tests in the con uh, continuous integration system, um, you have to um, look at risk again to go, okay, well, you know, the level of regression risk associated with a particular item, um, that's going to mean, you know, that, that's going to influence how much regression testing I, I put, automated regression testing I put in the continuous integration framework. So again, then we'll be looking at, at risk. And one would assume that the depth of testing done by the uh, product owner, uh, other business stakeholder during the acceptance test would also be uh, based on the level of risk. So that's what this looks like, graphically speaking. Um, testing, as in, 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 in any life cycle model, it doesn't matter which, we're trying to determine what to test, in what order, and how much, um, based on the level of risk um, associated with with uh, various um, attributes of the system. Um, and what this will do is uh, maximize the effectiveness and efficiency of the testing effort with respect to minimizing the residual level of quality risk at the end of testing. I mean, any, any testing that you do will reduce the level of quality risk, will reduce the risk of previously undetected failures in production. But only risk-based testing is actually um, uh, designed to maximize the um, amount of uh, risk mitigation that is achieved by testing. Um, all, any other technique that is not risk-aware will leave a larger amount of residual risk uh, behind. Now, um, if you're not familiar with risk-based testing at all, then one of the things I would recommend is that you go to the RBCS website, rbcs-us.com, navigate to the resources tab in the upper middle, as I said, and then from there to the digital library. There's a number of videos on risk-based testing that can give you a, a basic overview in a lifecycle independent way of uh, how risk-based testing works. 
So I'd encourage you to do that if, if this is entirely new to you. Um, just to give a high-level overview here of risk analysis and um, risk-based testing, you know, something that I can spend in, and have and do spend hours and hours on in training courses. Um, basically, what we what we can say is that risk is the possibility of a negative or undesirable outcome. So it's a bad thing that could happen. Um, and risks risks have different levels of risk. Um, and the easiest way to think of that is to look at two distinct factors. One is the likelihood of some of this bad thing happening. And the other is the impact if this bad thing does happen. And I think this is fairly intuitive. We do this in our day-to-day -day life all the time. Um, you know, so the things that, that are as a certain threshold of likelihood and a certain threshold of impact, and we worry about them. And the, the higher the likelihood and or impact, um, the greater the steps that we take to avoid getting into this, um, in, into such a situation, uh, a risky situation. Um, you know, so most people are aware that, you know, car accidents um, can be can be fairly high impact, but they're, you know, they're relatively low likelihood. So, you know, as long as we're cautious when we're driving, then, uh, you know, that's, that's a sufficient mitigation. Uh, of course, you know, you don't want to do anything that is going to increase your likelihood of being in a car accident, like driving drunk um, or, you know, driving at a time of night or during particular holiday when a lot of people are drunk, like, for example, driving around at 2 a.m. on, on um, uh, New Year's Eve, um, you know, probably not the world's smartest thing to do. So, you know, most of the time we take we take um, steps to uh, to reduce likelihood wherever we can uh, for those things that are going to be a significant impact to us. So, again, this is pretty much common sense. Now, when I talk about quality risk, uh, a quali quality risk is a potential problem that could occur that would affect uh, the quality of the product. Um, and I'll give you some examples of that on the next slide. Um, a project risk is different. A project risk is a potential problem that would endanger a project success. Now, generally, the way that you can distinguish between a quality risk and a project risk is to ask yourself whether you could mitigate the risk by running a test prior to release. If you can, then it's quality risk. Quality risks are testable. I can test for performance problems, for example. But project risks, things like somebody being out sick for a substantial period of time, key piece of equipment not showing up um, on time, so forth, I can't run a test to mitigate that um, risk. Now, um, in a traditional life cycle model, there is going to be one big quality risk analysis up front uh, during the planning process, and um, the result of that risk analysis, the risk catalog, will be periodically um, uh, adjusted as new information becomes available, typically at major project milestones. In Agile, that gets turned on its head. So what happens is it's during the release planning at the very beginning, then um, Say a tester and um, maybe maybe just one or two of the developers together with the business stakeholders will sit down and do a very high level analysis of the um, of the risks. Just you know, at, again at a high level, very general, the kinds of things that we'd be worried about, just to gain some insights 
um, and to position ourselves to do certain kinds of testing that might have long, longer um, lead times, such as, say, performance testing or something like that. Um, but the bulk of the risk analysis, the detailed quality risk analysis, is actually going to occur, as I said before, during iteration planning. It will involve the whole team, uh, including the uh, product owner and other business stakeholders. Um, and that's where we're going to um, identify the specific risks as opposed to the high-level risks. Uh, and then, um, of course, uh, in that sprint, we'll address those specific risks um, through the design, implementation, and execution of tests. Um, so let's look at some examples here um, of what, what we would be talking about if we were talking about a quality risk. Um, so um, any anything that would affect um, customer, user, or stakeholder satisfaction um, can be thought of as a as a quality risk, assuming that it is a testable attribute of the uh, of the system. Um, so an example um, system calculates incorrect total on a uh, year-end sales report. Um, that would be one um, example of a, a functional quality risk uh, item. Um, slow response time during user login. Well, that's a non-functional quality risk um, specifically related to performance. Um, user finds the customer login screen confusing um, that's a, also a non-functional uh, quality risk, in this case, related to usability. Um, so, and we can have functional and non-functional quality risks. Um, and, um, you know, it's important that you do consider, consider both, uh, both types. Um, now, what we're going to do in the risk analysis, we will identify these specific risk items and it's typically going to be, you know, 15, 20, 25 risk items in a single sprint. Um, it's very unlikely to be more than that. Um, so we will um, do more testing for the higher level risks, um, do less testing for the lower level risks. Um, again, trying to sequence the development so that we can test the higher level risks earlier and the lower level risks later. Um, and in terms of, of effort allocation, it's important that when we go through the estimation process that um, we um, assign more effort um, and story points or you, uh, person hours, however, however you're doing that as part of your estimation process. Um, to um, make sure that um, you know, you, you're, you're thinking about how much testing effort is involved as part of the release planning. Um, okay, so in terms of the process, um, at the beginning of each iteration, you're going to be going through the um, selected um, iteration backlog items um, 
And as part of that process, together with the whole team, what we want to do is identify the functional and non-functional quality risks that are associated with each one of the items. Um, then once we have identified the um, quality risks, we want to go through, excuse me, we to go through and um, categorize the risk appropriately. What type of risk is it? Um, usability, performance, reliability, and so forth. Just to think about, okay, what kind of testing is going to be required here? What test type will be necessary? Um, and also for each risk item assess the level of risk uh, based on the likelihood and impact. Now, as you do that process, you want to make sure that you um, avoid clumping of the risk ratings. Now, clumping, clumping happens when um, you have too many items that are receiving the same or similar um, likelihood and or impact rating. So, for example, if most of the risk items are rated as very high uh, or high impact, then you have clumping. Um, what you want is a fairly even distribution of the risk items across uh, the, the impact ratings and across the likelihood ratings. And it's easy enough if you use a spreadsheet to um, look at this in the histogram and see if you have any, any clumping happening. You want to be careful of that because if you do have um, a lot of clumping, then you're not going to get any real good effective prioritization of your tests out of the um, out of the process. Um, so once you have the um, likelihood and impact distributions looking good, um, and, and many times the, the, the pathway to doing that is simply making sure that you have uh, very clear criteria for assignment into particular likelihood and impact ratings, especially with impact and especially the higher ones. A very high and high impact. You want to try to be very strict about what gets rated as very high or high impact. Once you have that all um, determined, then um, you're going to be able to use the level of risk to figure out what the appropriate extent of testing is. Um, and um, I'm going to come back to that uh, topic here in, in a little bit. Um, and that's Subsequently, you're going to also determine what test techniques you should use to cover each risk item, and that's something else I'm going to come back to. Um, now, that's something for you in terms of your design and implementation, the, the um, extent of testing to pursue, the uh, test techniques to use. Now, there's also another group activity that needs to happen here, which is the, the estimation part, uh, participating in the estimation. And you're going to use the, the um, selected extent of testing to influence uh, how much effort you think uh, is required to test a particular uh, risk item to cover it adequately. Um, so that'll, that'll be uh, part of the, uh, your input into the, uh, the estimation process. Um, now, um, in traditional life cycle models, excuse me, I'm getting a little drink of water there. In a traditional life cycle model, um, we have to plan on fairly significant updates to the risk catalog 
um, at major project milestones as the project evolves. Now, since we're doing since we're doing the risk analysis on an iteration by iteration basis, we're much closer to the work. Um, so the adjustments tend to be a lot less, but nonetheless, it is still possible that you will need uh, to make adjustments as you go. So you should be aware of that possibility and ready for that possibility um, as you go along that you, you might need to make adjustments. Um, now, something else to be aware of is that just as in a traditional lifecycle model, when you're going through a user story and identifying risks in it, you might very well um, identify problems um, in the user story, um, testability issues, uh, um, functionality problems, uh, lack of clarity, and so forth. Um, so it should be seen as an opportunity to improve the um, user stories as well as um, identifying risks in them. Okay. Um, now, in this slide, you see a um, template for uh, capturing risks. And again, I would I would recommend using a, um, a spreadsheet to uh, to do this. Let me uh, get over here and put the highlighter. So um, we have a uh, list of 24 quality risk categories. It's available for free download off of the uh, basic library on the RBCS website. And um, what I would do is encourage you to go to get that list. And when you're going through the uh, risk identification process um, during iteration planning, then um, after going through the user stories, make sure that you quickly review the, um, the risks in that checklist. Uh, excuse me, the risk categories in that checklist to make sure that you haven't left anything out. Um, it's it's quite possible that you um, that you could omit something. The thing with thing with user stories is that in spite of uh, I don't know the ambitions of of some people to capture non-functional elements in a user story. Um, what we're seeing with our clients is that for the most part, the user stories are describing functional. Behavior now, in some cases, it's pretty straightforward to see non-functional risk items associated with a specific user story. But in other cases, it's not. So, um, you know, as evidence of of this, um, I guess if I say inherent weakness in agile, I'll get the dogmatists stirred up. But um, I, I do think that this this is a, a risk that's inherent in the use of user stories as a way of capturing requirements. Um, because of that, um, you know, the, the rollout of the um, healthcare.gov here in the United States um, was very problematic in terms of things like interoperability and um, uh, performance and security um, because you know, they used Agile methods to develop that, that uh, system. And... Uh, well, the, the functionality was apparently there, um, you know, <laughs> what was behind it wasn't so good because it didn't uh, uh, 
communicate well with other things, and also had had significant performance and security problems. So just be careful when you're doing the risk analysis. Don't just confine yourself to the user stories. Uh, make sure that you go through this checklist as well, and uh, uh, be careful not to forget any uh, non-functional kinds of risks. So um, you go through, you identify the risks. That's the first, the first pass. And then having done that, you're going to go back and assess the likelihood and the impact uh, associated with each risk. Now, likelihood, this is the likelihood that a bug might exist in the software uh, when it's delivered to you for testing. Um, it's basically a measure of, of the level of technical risk because likelihood is, you know, it has to do with how the system is built. Um, impact is you know, how bad would it be if we released something with a bug in this area and uh, uh, it affected our customers, users, or other stakeholders? Uh, so that's primarily from a business perspective, that, that rating. Uh, some of our clients actually, they, they delegate the, the rating of likelihood to the most senior developer and delegate the um, rating of impact to a product owner. We have one client that's doing agile risk-based testing, and that's the approach that they're using. So um, that is something you can do, uh, or you can just have it be part of this group, this group activity. Uh, I think in agile, probably makes more sense to have it be part of this group activity as long as you can, um, as long as you're careful to manage the time that's associated with doing it. Now, um, as you can see, uh, have a suggested scale here from very high to very low. Um, I'm using a, um, a descending scale, which is as the number goes uh, down, or as the number goes up, the risk goes down. Um, likelihood and impact, um, that is, as well as the aggregate measure of risk. Uh, if you don't like that, if you prefer to use an ascending scale where the higher number, five, means the highest level of, of uh, likelihood and or impact, then you know, feel free to do that. Um, you can do it either way. I use the descending scale just because it's very similar to typical bug tracking systems that severity one is the most important bug and severity five is least important bugs. Um, but you know, use, use whichever approach, ascending or descending, that you like. Um, now, what is very important is that you have, as I said before, clearly defined criteria that have to be satisfied for a risk item to fit into a particular um, likelihood and impact rating. Um, it's especially important for impact. Likelihood is a little more straightforward because something that's very high likelihood, you know, is, is clearly something that's almost certain to happen, right, versus high likelihood where it's like, well, it's more likely to happen than not to happen. Medium likelihood is, well, you know, it might happen, it might not happen. It's about 50-50. Low likelihood is, well, you know, um, it's more likely not to happen than to happen. Um, and very low likelihood is it's almost certain not to happen. You know, that, that's pretty straightforward. People internalize that pretty quickly. But impact, impact is a little harder. Um, and I've done, um, you know, exercises with people around the world on this and, uh, worked with clients around the world on this, and it's, they always, everybody always struggles with, you know, how do I assign impact? And the key to it is come up with a set of criteria that are clearly defined, that everybody can understand, um, that, you know, fairly simple. Don't, don't, you want this not to be too convoluted. 
And you know, I'm not trying to replicate the U.S. tax code or anything like that with this. It's, you want to keep it down to three, maybe four um, uh, criteria per um, level, and then people just look at it and go, yeah, okay, it meets that one, so it goes, it goes in here. Um, if you can get these criteria right, the impact ratings will be pretty straightforward. If you don't get the criteria right, this is going to be a constant source of struggle, and worse yet, you're um, not going to achieve the, the kind of benefits out of this technique that you, that you really want. Now, having rated the likelihood and the impact, we can then come up um, with um, the risk priority number, which is uh, the way I, I do this. Is I like to keep things simple. I just multiply the likelihood times the impact. So if I have a likelihood of one and an impact of one, the risk priority number is one. Likelihood of three and an impact of two, then the risk priority number is six, and so forth. Obviously, if I set this up in a spreadsheet, this can all be happening completely automatically. Um, the next, I select the extent of testing. Now, what I've shown here is that if the the risk priority number is from one to five, I'm going to do extensive testing. If it's from six to ten, I'm going to do broad testing. Eleven to fifteen will be cursory testing. 16 to 20 will be opportunistic testing, and 21 to 25 will be no testing, but I will report bugs. I'm going to talk a little bit more about the extent of testing and what those mean here in, in a moment. Um, so hold, hold, the, hold your thoughts and questions on that, and I'll, I'll explain this further. Um, the, thing, the important thing to keep in mind about these extensive testing, extensive testing um, categories here, the five, the five levels, that I've shown is that um, this still leaves a lot to the judgment of the tester. It's not like a magic formula that you're going to be able to crank out, oh, so this risk priority number equals this number of person hours or this, you know, um, this number of test cases. That, that's not something you're, you're, you're going to be able to do. I, I don't think it, it would like, make a lot of sense. I mean, obviously, if you had, if you had developed a bunch of tests for a bunch of risk items, and you did a scatter plot, um, you know, looking at the number of tests per risk item based on the the um, risk priority number of the risk item. You'd see, clearly you'd see correlation there, but I don't think it would be like a nice straight line, you know, showing perfect correlation. I, I don't think it makes sense to do that. It's uh, more of a matter of guidance. And then finally, this tracing column here, you would just capture the user story identifier. Uh, that way, if the user story is modified at some point during the course of the uh, sprint, new acceptance criteria are defined for it, what have you, you can go back and look at the risks that are related to it to see if any of those risks need to be uh, expanded upon. Okay, so as a template for capturing it, um, so you're, you're going to um, um, estimate, as I said, as part of the iteration planning. So the um, risk level is one of the things you're going to look at when you're trying to think of what's the, the story size uh, from a testing point of view. And... Um, you also want to think about um, complexity. Some, some things are just inherently harder to test because they're more complex. 
there's also uncertainty that needs to be considered because, um, you know, if you're if you're not clear on how you're going to test something, obviously you want to rate that as as um, higher. Um, you know, the, the in in techniques like planning poker, you'll sometimes hear this phrase "throwing the king" to mean that um, you know this is is sufficiently complex, uncertain, et cetera, that I, I can't estimate it. It's too big to estimate. It needs to be broken down further. Um, so, yeah, this uh, your risk analysis would then be a feed into the the estimation process. Again, you know, use a technique like planning poker. You know, that will work fine. Um, you're going to need to be ready to explain, okay, you know, this kind of this kind of risk item at this level of risk, this is how we have to go about testing it, so this is why it's going to take as long as I think it's going to take. You know, expect that you, you can get some amount of pushback if you say that something is going to take a lot of effort. Um, now, you do – it is important that the estimation be done in a, in a reliable fashion. Um, and um, – you know, one of the things that you want to have in um, in Agile is a, a well-established velocity for the team. In other words, it, uh, how much work can the team get done in a given sprint, um, so that you're not like continually over-committing and um, and you know basically failing to deliver things. And that's because that's that's you know back to the bad old days of uh, you know what people always complain about with the um, V model and then the sequential model is that, oh, you know, it's always, you know, 20 pounds in a 10-pound bucket and you get to the end of the project and it's not done, you know. So you certainly don't want to replicate that in Agile, which means that you, you have to know, you know, how much work can we get done in a two-week, three-week, four-week sprint um, and, uh, you know, what, uh, what, what actually does constitute a particular size of work. So... Yeah, it's important that this be um, be done, you know, carefully and seriously. Now, let's look at um, the different um, extents of testing here, um, extents of testing ratings or levels from extensive to broad to cursory to opportunity to report bugs only. Um, basically, as extensive it is what it sounds like, you're going to run a lot of tests. You're going to test broad across the um, – breadth of the, the user story, um, as well as deep. You're going to do uh, combina combinational types of testing. You're going to go out and you're going to look at relevant techniques and apply them with very strong coverage criteria. Now, um, if um, if you haven't seen this already, and I would guess that most of you haven't, there is an um, article on uh, the RBCS articles page. So if you go out to the articles page, you can find this. It's pretty short. It's like three, three pages. It's actually sort of a, it's a form of blog post converted into an article, um, which in turn is part of a book that I wrote, Advanced Software Testing Volume uh, 2. Volume, no, yes, Volume 2. Um, and uh, that will give you guidance on suggested techniques to match up with these particular extensive testing. So I suggest that you go out and look at that. Um, I'm just covering this kind of at a higher level here on this slide, but it's, there's, there's a lot more depth about what I mean by use all relevant techniques with strong coverage criteria, for example. Um, so broad 
um, broad testing is I'm not going to run a lot of tests. It's going to be kind of a medium level of tests. I'm going to make sure that I've identified uh, a lot of different interesting conditions. Um, I'm going to apply um, the relevant test design techniques, but I'm not going to be very strict about coverage. Um, cursory is, you know, I'm just going to test the most interesting things. I'm going to use various test design techniques, but, you know, I'm going to be pretty relaxed about what it would mean to cover them. Opportunity is, you know, I'm not going to create any tests specifically for this risk item, but I am, if I, if I get a chance to test this um, as part of testing something else, I will do that. Um, you know, exploratory testing, for example, is a good fit for this. And then report bugs only is I'm, I'm going to say, you know, um, I'm not actually going to do any testing for this at all, but if I happen to see a bug related to this risk item, uh, I will spend the time to report it. Um, now, the the relative distributions of these, I showed on the previous slide, even distribution, and 1 through 5 is extensive, and 6 through 10 was broad, and so forth. You don't have to do it that way. You can make those distributions however you want, whatever is going to fit uh, for your product. If you're dealing with something that's much more, and quality is very important, you might have, um, you might only have extensive broad and cursory as the three levels of risk that you use. And every risk item is going to get tested. It's just a matter of to what extent. If something seen as generally low risk and it's like, well, look, we just need to get, get a lot of features out as quickly as possible, there may be very little extensive testing, um, maybe even fairly limited amount of broad testing, and mostly cursory and opportunity testing with some amount of reporting bugs only. So. You know, that's, it, it's completely up to you as to how to, how to um, kind of tweak that distribution to fit what you, uh, what you want. Uh, now, in terms of that, that template that we were looking at, I mentioned that this um, you know, spreadsheet is a good way of doing that. There are, out on the RBCS basic library, a couple examples of spreadsheets used for um, risk analysis. So, you know, feel free to download those uh, and use those as well. Um, okay, so again, this risk identification needs to be part of this whole collaborative process of user story creation. So we're, we're, when we're doing the risk identification, we're looking at the user stories and may very well be um, modifying them, uh, clarifying them, defining acceptance criteria for those. Um, so this this should be this process of identification of the risk item should be um, integrated into that 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 process of um, creating and refining the user stories uh, for a particular iteration. Um, particularly important is to talk about the uh, confirmation process of how, how you're going to check the acceptance criteria during this risk analysis um, um, uh, process that you're going through. Um, you know, obviously, to um, uh, make it clear you know, what it would mean for this to be done uh, is essential to, to really uncovering all of the risks that, you, um, that you're going to need to explore um, as, as part of uh, uh, doing the testing. And it's also important that you um, um, 
deal with any sort of testability issues that are associated with a particular user story. So a testability issue, an example of that would be, you know, there, there might be a couple different ways to implement a um, user story, um, and one of them um, inherently creates a whole lot more potential uh, invalid inputs that would have to be tested. Uh, as an example of that, you know, suppose that you were um, uh, testing something like Microsoft Outlook and specifically looking at the task and appointment creation. Now, if you're familiar with that feature, um, not only can you uh, select dates and times off of pull-down menus, but you can also edit them directly. Now, that means that you have to test both different ways of, of entering a date, and there's a whole lot of negative testing that has to be done for the um, uh, the manual entry um, that would, is, is completely unnecessary for the pull-down list. Um, if you can't, you know, if a date doesn't exist, like the 31st of February, it's not going to be on the pull-down calendar, and thus you can't select it. So, you know, that makes an Outlook inherently less testable than, say, the uh, go-to-meeting and go-to-webinar interface that we use for this particular uh, presentation. When I was setting up some webinars for the spring uh, yesterday, you know, I went to enter dates and times. You, you can't you can't edit those directly. Those are pulled. Those are selected off of a pull-down menu, which is a calendar, and the only things that you see are valid dates. So the Citrix interface is inherently the Citrix Go to Webinar interface is inherently a lot more testable and then it's easier to test than the Microsoft Outlook um, interface. So you know, have that conversation because that's that's important too from a from a um, you know how much risk mitigation can we actually accomplish perspective. Um, so again, you know, look at the acceptance criteria. Look at the risks that are associated with particular acceptance criteria. See here it says, okay, current um, and previous versions of four different um, four different browsers. Um, no horizontal scrolling required. So you know, it's pretty clear there. You go, okay, well, I've got I've got specific tests that I have to do. There's basically eight. Eight uh, supported browsers. Um, there's four, four different specific browsers, but uh, two versions of each one. Um, and I also have to make sure that I look at uh, the horizontal scrolling. If there's anything that's unclear in terms of the acceptance criteria and, and uh, you know the quality risks that would be associated with that, then again, you just need to go. Hmm. Okay, we need to talk about this a little further. Um, now, in a lot of um, a lot of our clients that are doing agile, following a model that looks like what you see here on this slide, which is that let me get the highlight the spotlight up. Um, you have testers, individual testers who are assigned to work as part of a specific um, scrum team 
And so they're they're in they're embedded within the team. And you have other testers who are doing supporting roles like automation and test data and test environments and so forth, and they're not specifically within the team. And we have a test manager managing this whole group. Now, this can be kind of a transition uh, role-wise because, you know, the tra in traditional lifecycle models, the risk analysis and the test planning is going to be driven by the test manager. Um, if there's a tester, an individual contributor involved in the risk analysis, it's going to be a very senior one. Now, each individual tester here is going to have to be ready to drive the risk analysis, uh, quality risk analysis, within their own teams, possibly supported by the test manager, um, but for the most part on their own. So this is um, important. If you are a test manager, you're transitioning into Agile, you're currently using um, risk-based testing, you want to um, make sure that you continue to do that. If you've been traditionally the one who's been handling the quality risk analysis, you're going to need to ramp up your people. You're going to need to get them up to speed on how this how this process works. So, you know, um, probably the way to do that is to um, support them initially by by being present during that process for each person and kind of coaching them, um, getting them some training either you know, actual formal training or, um, you know, making sure they go through some of the, the resources that are available on the RBCS website, for example, at the very least, so that they can actually do this, um, carry this out. Because otherwise what's likely to happen is that uh, they're just simply not going to know how to do it and um, <clears throat> that the process is going to wither and die. Now, um, Change does happen. Um, this is part of this sort of an essential um, aspect of um, uh, agile development. And um, so, when when things change, um, keep in mind that that will affect your risk analysis. That will affect your the, your current test results. Um, you know, be ready to go back and, and look at your risk analysis, update your risk analysis if there's a change to a user story or if there's a new user story that gets dropped in in the middle of the sprint. Um, I, I know that according to Scrum Theory, these things aren't supposed to happen, that once the content of a sprint is decided, that, that, that should not change. But, um, you know, for pretty much every client that, that um, I've worked with that's doing Agile, Change does happen um, during the sprints, and um, you have to be uh, you have to be ready to deal with it, um, and make sure that um, you know you're you're set up to report your results in a way which is flexible enough that it's when the change happens, it's not um, uh, a, a big disaster to you in terms of of your results reporting. This is. Um, one of the challenges that our clients are, that are trying to use the more traditional type of test management tools like Rational Test Manager, Quality Center, those kind of things, uh, are running into when they try to do, they try to transition to Agile is that they find out, you know, um, it's the, the, the tools were sort of designed on a basic assumption that 
um, plans and will be established at the beginning. The test basis will be established at the beginning of the project, and that that's that, you know. And so, you know, if you are using one of the more traditional test management tools for uh, results capture and results reporting, um, just you know, think through this issue of how do we set this up and how do we capture information in a way that's uh, change resistant. Um, yeah, um, make sure that part of your results reporting does include um, capturing the uh, the status of the risk items. Uh, one of the things that you might do is um, uh, figure out a way of taking that risk catalog that we put together at the beginning of the um, iteration and um, categorizing each uh, risk item as your tests go, um, as your test execution goes. Uh, basically, what I, would, what I would suggest is that each risk item should be categorized as green, red, or black. Green means that for this risk item, all of the associated tests have been run and they all pass. So this risk is fully mitigated. Red would mean um, some or all of the tests for this risk item have been run, and at least one of those tests is currently failing, or um, there was a bug found that is associated with this risk item via something like exploratory testing. Um, so this is, a, this is a risk with known problems. And then black is basically a risk that is neither red nor green. So um, some or none of the tests have been run. At this point, none of the tests have failed, and there are no known bugs, but we're still in the dark about this, hence black classification. Um, and, um, you know, we haven't, we haven't finished testing it yet. So, you know, there are ways of making that pretty, pretty easily visible. You could have just a simple whiteboard um, that had, had three columns, you know, that, that had uh, black, black, red, and green. Um, and the, the risk items are stuck up there on the, in the appropriate column. And, you know, you're not done until all the risk items are in, in the, uh, the green column. Uh, and this is something that could be done as, as a way of augmenting the, um, the uh, task boards in the daily stand-up meetings. Um, basically, that's going to provide a little additional detail underneath the, um, uh, the, the testing status. So if we, if we look at um, the task board, here, example task board. Um, yeah, as things as, as user stories, the, the US there, uh, as those move into the verify column, we're going to find bugs with them. Um, there might be associated tasks that get spawned out of that. Um, so, the, let me get the um, highlighter up here. The, uh, The test results here would be where you would actually have a finer grain breakdown for the status of these different verifies. Like, again, the user stories, you know, what is the user story um, can also be classified as uh, um, red, uh, green, green, red, or black, um, using the same kind of criteria as was discussing. Um, the risks. Uh, bugs can be shown as, you know, whether they're active or not. So 
having a separate um, separate way of displaying your test results is a good practice in Agile because the problem the problem with these um, um, task boards is that there's they're really pretty opaque when it comes to what the status of testing is and if you look at um, the the agenda you know again in agile here you know your your agenda for the daily standard meetings is just you know what have you done since the last meeting what do you plan to complete for the next one what's getting in your way um, that's purely tactical in terms of how do we get to done right but you actually also want to discuss as a tester well what what's what's the status of my testing so you need an additional um, item on your agenda that basically says you know what's what's the test status um, so you don't want to incorporate that here so that you're able to provide some detail in terms of the, um, the test results okay so um, include here risk-based testing is a um, uh, Long proven t uh, testing best practice. This is something that I've been working on, helping clients do, and using myself for, oh, God, um, closing in on 20 years now. Um, when I first got started doing it, it was um, kind of outlandish, I guess. Uh, and we were using techniques that were pretty heavyweight, borrowed, borrowed from manufacturing. It's like, you know, a lot of people are trying to do with Agile now, borrowing lean ideas. With, uh, borrowed things like fair mode and effect analysis, but we really gotten it tightened up a lot now, and you know, nice lightweight but effective techniques. Um, it is there. There are a number of things that are important about risk-based testing, and the two that are most important one is uh, engagement of the stakeholders, which fortunately in um, agile you're you're supposed to have that in the stakeholder engagement. Um, another thing that's very important is. Uh, properly integrating um, the risk-based testing activities into the life cycle. And that is something a lot of our clients have struggled with. Hopefully this will give you some ideas on how to do that. Um, uh, keep in mind that, um, as I've mentioned throughout here, that the, the quality risk analysis iterates. It happens at the beginning of each iteration. It is adjusted during the iterations. Um, you want to make sure that you don't just use this to think out how much testing to do, uh, but also, again, the design, the execution, and the results reporting um, should all be, be risk aware. Um, it is possible, as I discussed, to um, integrate this into other traditional or other, other um, particular agile techniques, um, planning poker, for example, and the use of this in an estimation, uh, uh, augmenting the task boards, and have a, an additional test results board. Um, so um, risk-based testing um, implemented properly is very consistent with the, um, the whole Agile approach. It is going to get your, your focus in the right place and um, ultimately uh, make your, your testing more Agile um, uh, in, a, in a way that complements um, the uh, agility of the software development. 
So, with that all said, let's go to uh, let's go to Q and A here. Um, Let's see, I had a question here at the beginning, and this is worth, worth just mentioning, and this comes up via email, too, but somebody asked about when is the webinar due to start, and they gave their local time zone. Um, there are a lot of time zones in the world. <laughs> we do this webinar for free, and we're happy, we're happy to provide this as a free service, but there are plenty of free resources on the Internet that will convert time zones for you. So when the webinar says that, it's, that when the webinar invitation says that it starts at 1 p.m. Central Time in the United States, we're in the United States, you're going to need to take the initiative to figure out what that means in terms of your local time, because it's just not not something that we're going to be able to do is tell the the hundreds of attendees, okay, so in your local time it starts here, and in your local time it starts here. So please go. Use, use some of those um, universal uh, time and date converters that are out there on the Internet. There are a number of them. Um, and, um, you know, just convert it yourself. Now, theoretically, when you get the invite, if you add the invite to your Outlook calendar, it should convert that for you. I have had situations, particularly right around, you know, when daylight savings time is about to change uh, where that got screwed up. So. Apologies if that happens, but that's that's a that's a Microsoft bug, which which can and does occur. Um, somebody asked um, how how we track who is participating, um, and that's that's something that Citrix does. So if you're you know if you are here participating, um, then we'll get a report that shows that you were. Now I should point out there is there is still a bug with that. Um, if you participate using a um, tablet or other mobile device, um, you you can participate, but unfortunately you don't get shown you don't get shown as an attendee. So that can create some problems. So if you need PDUs, you need to make sure that you uh, uh, attend via um, uh, a regular PC. Uh, apologies for that. If you want to see that bug gets fixed which we certainly would like to see that bug get fixed, please contact um, Citrix. Now, I've got a comment here specific to slide three. So let's go, whoops. <laughs> let's go back to slide three. Uh, okay, that doesn't work. Oops. Okay, so comment is from Bill. Good to see you back, Bill. Um, comment on third slide. Order of feature creation is influenced by level of risk. Yes. Uh, sometimes the level of project risk and quality risk are influenced by the order of feature creation. We have Kanban stack ranks in some of our projects to help visualize this. Uh, well, I guess I can see how how the order of feature creation could influence project risk. I'm having a little trouble visualizing how it influences quality risk. So obviously, if things if if you got a lot of dependencies between um, 
uh, related user stories, then I can see how that would that would that would create some project risks. Of you know, you, you implement things in the wrong order, and then you've got something which is implemented, but we're not able to test it because, say, the the interface, the user interface isn't available. The feature is there, but the user interface is part of another user story, and so the user the, the feature exists but can't be tested. That would be a project risk, and just I'm having a little difficulty seeing how it changes quality risk. If maybe you can follow up, Bill, and uh, give, a, give an additional suggestion on that. Um, we have one person mentioned that they lost sound and had to log out and come back in. Um, it only can't, it only got their feedback from one person, so apparently it was not a systemic thing. Um, so Stefan says, assessing risk is meaningless for regression testing as all tests are typically run by CI tools each night. So it means risk is assessed for new features or user stories. In that case, impact is usually easier to assess than the technical risk. Are there some good practices or good ways to assess technical risks? Um, so when I was talking about assessing risk from, from the regression testing point of view, uh, I, I would agree that the order in which the tests are run in the regression suite is probably meaningless in the sense that as long as they all get run overnight, then who cares, right? Um, now, you still have to figure out how much testing you need to do. Um, so that there is an assessment, there is a risk assessment involved in the sense of going, well, how much testing do I need to have in my, my continuous integration suite? Um, and it's usually not a good idea just to say, I'm going to automate every test and throw it in the CI automated test bucket and then rerun that every time I rerun it. With our clients that have tried to do that have found fairly quickly that you get to have a very large, you get to a large number of regression tests. You start to have some significant issues related to false positives. In other words, tests that fail even though there's not actually a problem with the software or some other issue that's come up that needs to be addressed. You can start to run into test maintenance problems. So the value of a test, the value of running an automated test can be less than zero. Uh, the cost of running an automated test is never less than zero. It's always greater than zero. Um, and so, you know, you have to evaluate from a risk point of view of, you know, it is, am I, is the risk mitigation that I'm going to get out of this automated regression test worth what ultimately it's going to cost to have it in there? Um, so I would say that there is there is value in in doing that assessment, doing a risk assessment. Um, but I think what you're saying here, um, you're talking about technical risk. I think you're talking about the likelihood of of failure of a regression test. Um, that level of technical risk associated with a regression test. Um, and that's that's going to change as time goes on. And one of the things that it makes sense to do is to look at your regression test results over time and um, prune those tests 
Um, so, you know, if there are tests where apparently the technical risk is very low because they never fail, um, then you have to look at it and go, okay, well, you know, if this is a high enough impact, it's worth keeping the test even though it never fails. Um, but if it's not a very high impact uh, risk item associated with this, maybe we want to prune this out. So, you know, having having some sort of assessment of the of the level of, of likelihood and impact associated with the uh, regression test and uh, periodically evaluating that and trimming those, um, pruning those, those tests out, some of those tests out, as they get less and less worth doing uh, is, is definitely a good practice because and I was just talking to a couple people last week that were struggling with this very problem of, you know, we've accumulated a bunch of automated regression tests and we're getting to the point where there's, it's starting to overwhelm us. Uh, let's see, Jonathan says, what foundational skill set do you think helps young QA analysts become better at risk analysis? Black box techniques, test plan documentation, defect management. Um, thanks. Um, well, I think you really need to be, if, if you're if you're a tester, so I mean, I think this this gets to the, the 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 issue that I was talking about with this slide here. So I've got a te I've got testers now who are used to being just individual contributors, not used to driving um, um, this kind of typical um, traditional test manager tests like doing quality risk analysis, like uh, devising a a test plan. Um, which is a whole different discussion about test plans in Agile, um, estimation, um, all of these kinds of things. You, you, you know, you're, you're, you're basically putting your finger on an issue, a, a larger issue, which is Agile teams are supposed to be self-directed and self-organized, right? Um, so this means that um, a lot of stuff that would, would typically be done by a manager in a traditional lifecycle model, or a development manager or test manager, is now getting pushed down to the individual contributor level. So, you know, really, Jonathan, what you have to do is um, educate the individual testers in um, test management skills, because that, that's what they're going to have to, to know. Um, you know, in order to be effective as a tester, in an Agile team, uh, you can't just go running to the test manager every time something comes up that requires some amount of management thinking. Um, uh, you know, that's going to overwhelm the test manager, and it also um, is, is contrary to the whole concept of the, of the self-directed and self-organizing team. So, you know, certainly the kind of Test management skills that are discussed in the ISTQB foundation level um, is is absolutely necessary. But I would say, you know, probably want to take that up to the next level. The advanced test manager, and you know, becomes appropriate. Or, you know, the kind of techniques that, that the kind of man management techniques that I discussed in, in my book, managing a testing process. I mean, people need to be aware of that. 
um, individual testers need to be aware of that. So it's yeah, it's, it it puts it puts the tester, the individual tester, in a much um, a uh, much more interesting spot in being an Agile in the sense that they not only do they have to become more savvy with respect to test management uh, techniques because they're they're effectively playing that role within the the um, Agile team, but also there's generally a need for them to become uh, more technical than they perhaps were in the past. Um, so being able to, to you know ideally read the, the code that the programmers are writing the product in. Um, being uh, able to uh, advise the programmers on things like uh, code coverage tools and the level of code coverage being achieved and what that means, um, you know, participating in a lot of automation activities. And there's just there's a lot of, of technical skills that are needed in addition. So, um, yeah, it's, it, this, this tends to, you know, transition to Agile tends to really... Uh, Challenge the um, um, testers' um, skill needs and the test manager's ability to grow the team into that, uh, into those skills. Um, you know, also very much challenged. And uh, one of our clients even uh, re renamed their test managers as coaches um, in, in this uh, situation because of what they found was that. Uh, you know, so much of the traditional test management activities, so many of those have devolved down into the individual contributors. Um, that what the what the test managers really had to do was be there, helping them, teaching them, coaching them on on all of these new things that they had to be able to do. Uh, Thomas asks, I've never heard of planning poker. Could you explain it in a bit more detail? Um, okay, so planning poker is a implementation of something that's called the Delphic Oracle um, estimation technique. So in the Delphic Oracle estimation technique, what happens is that let's say that we've got, we're going to go through and we're going to estimate uh, a bunch of tasks um, on a project. It's letting aside what the project is, what the tasks are, but we've got tasks we want to estimate those. We have the, a group of people who have the appropriate experience to do the estimation. They're going to be involved in doing the project. We want to tap their collective wisdom and experience to um, come up with the estimate. Now, so one of the things we could do is just do an open-ended brainstorming session where we put up a task and go, all right, so how long do we think this is going to take? And everybody just kind of shouts out their thoughts. The problem with that is that um, when, when people do that, they just shout out their thoughts. Um, the first person to say what they think, that, that number, say they say, uh, you know, it's, it's 25 person hours, that number becomes what's called an anchor. So you have what's referred to as an anchoring problem. Basically, then, from, from then on, for the rest of the discussion about that task, everybody's going to be reacting to the 25 person hour number. Um, to avoid that, what you do in Delphic Oracle estimation is that people are asked to estimate the tasks, but they're asked to write them down on a piece of paper, and they don't show that to anybody. And then, once everybody has finished doing that, you have a point where you everybody reveals their number to everybody else, 
And if they all agree, then okay, fine, we use that number. If there's a, if there are disagreements, then what you do is you identify the person who's the high estimator, one who thinks it's going to take the longest, and the person who's the low estimator, one who thinks it's going to take the shortest uh, amount of time, and you ask each of them to explain their reasoning. Having done that, you then go through this process again. So, okay, so again, everybody estimates, write it down, you do another reveal, potentially do another round of, you know, the high and low estimators explaining, um, and uh, if, if there's no agreement, and then um, you'll, you'll try it a third time. Uh, usually that's where it's cut off. So after the third time, if you don't have convergence, then you have some way of tie-breaking, there are different rules for that. You can use the average. Um, you can use the the median. Uh, you can use the mode. Um, so you know different different suggestions for that. Now, so basically, planning poker is Delphic Oracle um, estimation. But the term planning poker, I believe, came from a guy named Mike Cohen, who is an agile consultant. Um, and if you go to his website, Mountain Goat Software, um, all, all one word, um, you can um, find out more about his his particular implementation of it. And he's got even playing cards and so forth to, to be used to do this. But, you, you mean, you actually, you don't have to do anything more sophisticated than what I just described. Um, there, there are various ways that people go about doing this estimation. Um, it can be done just using traditional person hours, and we have plenty of clients that do that. Um, Colin on his website talks about something called story points, uh, which are, are relative sizes using a Fibonacci series. Um, we've got one or two clients that, that have done that. Um, you, you can go at it either way. Um, and, and either way, you can use the story points or the person hours to establish what your velocity, you know, actually is, um, what, you, what you can actually get through. And again, so if you want to see more about planning poker as envisions, envisioned, excuse me, by Mike Cohen, just go out to uh, Mountain Goat Software and take a look at that. Um, Maria says, unexpected changes are the most significant contributor to to finding high risks, uh, but Agile says that we should be flexible with changes. So, how do you balance that flexibility with the risk communication and plan mitigation? Well, um, yeah, I mean, if if you are in the middle of an iteration and there's a significant change that is, you know, dropped out of effectively out of nowhere on um, a particular user story, that's obviously going to be very disruptive. Um, you know, you'll have to go back, you'll have to um, uh, reassess the likelihood and impact based on the change. That could result in some fairly significant twiddling of the uh, uh, user story, um, uh, excuse me, of the risk analysis and of the resulting testing. Um, now, you know, again, Scrum Scrum theory. I mean, if you uh, read Schwaber's book on Scrum, he he says basically that that shouldn't happen. That once the content of an iteration is determined, that um, the user story should not 
um, should not be changed. Um, you, you know, you shouldn't add new user stories um, and significantly modify the user stories that were already selected. Uh, our experience with, with our clients is that, yeah, they, they do change that. So, you know, mostly it's a matter of, A, making sure that you are included in these discussions about proposed changes during the sprints um, so that you're not blindsided by it, and B, that the decision about what changes to make um, uh, be based in part on what's the level of risk, quality risk associated with that, and um, how disruptive is that to the testing effort. So, you know, you, you want to really push to make sure that you've got that, that level of involvement. Let's see. Alexander. <coughs> Alexander asks, if there is a risk analysis added at the beginning of an iteration, how much time should be estimated for this process of risk analysis for sprint? How to estimate this time? Um, it's really a, it's a minor incremental addition. You're already going to be going through the user stories anyway at the beginning of the sprints. Um, and you're going to be uh, refining the user stories, um, refining, defining acceptance criteria. Um, so, you know, this is an incremental addition. I, I would say, you know, if, if this adds another hour, maybe, maybe two hours maximum. Um, but, you know, probably more like an hour. So really, if, if it's adding too much time, uh, I would guess that what's happening is you're getting hung up on either arguments about whether something is or is not a risk, in which case you need to get people better educated on how to, how to identify quality risk items, or you're having trouble getting agreement on likelihood and impact ratings, in which case you have a problem with your criteria and they, they need to be refined. Uh, Mary says, is the webinar available for free, free replay on your site? Yes, it's in the digital library. Um, we record all of these webinars, and um, they are posted on the digital library. So if you go to the resources tab, the center of the home, upper center of the home page, and navigate from there to the digital library, uh, you'll find this. It's usually posted within about a week. Um, Jan asks, what is the main difference or main different activities between the risk-based testing, risk testing and waterfall and agile testing? Basically, the main difference is just that in, in uh, traditional waterfall life cycles, we do a big upfront risk analysis uh, in parallel with the planning and requirement specification phases, uh, and then periodically adjust that as the project continues. And in Agile, we do a high-level risk analysis during release planning, and the specific risks, the specific risk items are identified um, repeatedly at the beginning of each iteration. Um, Nikos asks, Rex, could you give some hints about the estimation methods used in Agile testing projects? Thanks in advance. Um, Nikos, I think what I want to do with this request is punt on it. Um, hopefully you'll be able to attend the December webinar where I'm talking about estimation. 
and uh, we can get into this in a lot more detail there. Uh, I just can't, in the six minutes we've got left, I can't give you an answer that's anywhere worth um, <laughs> worth listening to. Um, Belina says, I had to drop due to no sound and join again. I assume it will count me. Uh, I, yeah, hopefully it, it shows you as an attendee, even though you, you did drop off. I, um, we'll work that out if it, if it didn't. Uh, let's see. Miko says, you say that risk-based testing is a long-proven testing best practice. Are there any studies supporting this claim, or is this statement based on your own experience. By the way, I'm a bit of, I'm, I'm a big fan of risk-based testing. Studies, uh, studies, studies, studies. I'm trying to think if, if this is one of these things that Capers Jones has looked at or not, um, whether he's done any analysis of it. Um, my, my, the claim that I'm making is it's based on my own experience. Again, you know, as I said, I've been doing this for uh, about 20 years now. Um, you know, I've, I've probably trained you know, personally or through my company and or partners, probably trained in excess of 10,000 people in the technique, I would guess. Um, and I've worked directly with clients to help them implement this technique, uh, you know, well over a dozen clients um, to, you know, help them launch it. I actually been involved in successful um, pilot um, efforts with them. Um, I've done it myself on a number of projects. Um, so, yeah, it, it, you know, my own experience, and also I've talked to other other people who are effectively competitors of mine, um, who have somewhat different techniques that they've developed. But techniques that are very similar, and they've used them successfully and with a large number of clients. Um, just recently, a company uh, called Test Leaders developed a um, tool that they're apparently selling like hotcakes that is uh, effectively an implementation of the technique that I just described. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's 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 anecdotal anecdotal, but it, there's a lot of anecdotes. Um, but as far as like industry studies, like something like Capers Jones going out and doing analysis of, you know, what percentage of organizations uh, have successfully implemented risk-based testing versus how many tried to implement it and failed, and of those that failed, did it, did they did it fail because of the way they implemented it, or did it fail because it just didn't give them any value? You know, that's something that somebody else would have to look at. Um, Antonio says, asks, how do we implement risk-based testing techniques in an environment where most of the testing resources are crowdsourced and planning time is very limited? Uh, I'll be frank with you, I don't know. Um, I'm not I'm not sure how, how exactly you would do that. Um, one of the problems with um, distributed, well, distributed testing can be centralized in a way that, that allows you to do risk-based testing and distributed testing and, or distributed situations. But what you're describing here 
goes beyond that. It's, we're getting into a situation where there's minimal planning, minimal control, direct control. Um, you know, so I, I don't. I honestly don't know how you would go about doing it. Um, this could be one of the one of the weaknesses of, of this. I mean, you know, there was a famous um, quote uh, from uh, one of the founding fathers, or maybe not founding fathers, but again, a thought leader, or at least big talking head, uh, I forget his name, um, of, of open source. Um, and he said, given enough eyeballs, all bugs are shallow, um, which sounds like a profound statement. But that's like saying that if you take enough shotgun blasts at a piece of cardboard, eventually you'll completely blow blow out all of the cardboard. And I would say, well, yeah, okay, but, you know, assuming there's a target painted on that cardboard, I actually don't, my goal is not to blow out the entire um piece of cardboard, my goal is to put holes right in the center of the target, right? So that's that's one of the ways that I've explained this to clients before is that, you know, these kind of just brute force approaches to uh, testing that throw a hell of a lot of resources at it, uh, it's, it's like, you know, using a, a machine gun or a shotgun where, where what you really want to do is use a sniper rifle, right, and, you know, put targeted holes exactly where you want to put holes rather than just blasting away at things. So, you know, I, I, I again, I, I don't really know what to say is like how you would go about doing it. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, Maria asks, if an Agile team never worked with formal risk-based testing to start its implementation, could, could it be an option to start the risk analysis and the release planning? high level, and then once the team is more mature, move to the iteration planning. Well, that's certainly what you would do, yeah, but um, what I'm suggesting is that you want to do both. You want to do you want to do risk analysis during the release planning at a high level and then um, do the, the more detailed uh, in each iteration plan. I really don't think, it, it, this, this technique is not that hard to use. I mean, I've gotten organizations started doing risk-based testing in, in a week. Um, so, you know, if, if you want to go that route, you know, it's, it's not a fair, not a very expensive consulting engagement, but if you've got no money, then there's, like I said, tons of resources out on the RBCS website for free, uh, videos and, and other kinds of resources that you can look at. Um, so, you know, you should be able to, to, to get people to do it. I mean, I, I, the thing I worry about with what you're suggesting, Maria, is that um, I, I, think the F, I think you would get very little value out of the, the analysis done in the release planning, and thus you'd never get to the point where people rolled it out to the iteration planning because the, the, the real value is going to come out of doing it at the iteration level. Um, and it's important to keep stakeholders engaged, and the way you're going to do that is by showing them value. And if you don't have any value to show them, it's, this process is going to die. Um, 
Mary says, for agile projects and risk-based testing, what challenges do you see with one individual performing tester and test manager? Well, I think I addressed this, Mary, with respect to Jonathan's question earlier. You asked this question about five minutes or ten minutes before I answered Jonathan's question, so I think I've, I've covered that. Um, Let's see, Terry asked, at the beginning of the session, you stated the presentation is or is not available. Yeah, it's available on the basic library. The, the slides are, and as I said before, the recorded presentation will be posted. Um, uh, let's see, I got a question from Irene here, which I think is going to have to be the last question. Uh, she says, um, I'm participating in, the, in an Agile flight project, and what we are supposed to do at the moment is a TSA support during unit testing. Later on, we will proceed with the full FST, assuming that's functional system test. I do not know what TSA support. Uh, FST testing, functional system testing, and end-to-end testing. What would be the best approach to make sure that what was tested in unit is secured and parked? Do you think we have to retest unit tested items in the functional system test? Thanks. Um, well, I'm assuming that you're talking about that the testing is going to um, happen within the sprint and be focused on the individual items. And then later, a after the sprints, that you're going to go into more of a um, full-blown end-to-end system integration, system test type of approach. Some people make fun of this and call this scrummer fall, you know, with a, a waterfall piece at the end prior to release and hardening sprints and so forth. Um, now, in terms of do we have to retest, well, okay, so there's regression testing, and, you know, you want to have a, a lot of automated regression test support available for you in this process because it's, it's inherently there's a lot of regression risk in Agile. Um, so, but that stuff should be very inexpensive to retest. Um, the question of do, do we have to go back and, and do things over again, well, you know, no. I mean, if you have, if you're doing risk-based testing, if you feel like a particular risk from, from a new development point of view has been adequately mitigated, then it's been adequately mitigated. This is one of the advantages of risk-based testing if you use it to coordinate all of your testing is that you, uh, you won't necessarily, uh, you won't have to necessarily repeat things. So we've run a little long. Um, thank you for all of your interesting questions. Um, the, um, now to close the session, a little bit more about the resources that are available. We run these three webinar sessions once a month. Check our website, rbcs-us.com, to sign up. If you want a special webinar presentation for your company only of this webinar or on any other topic, uh, send an email to info at rbcs-us.com or contact us via our website. On our uh, website, you can sign up for our regular free newsletter, which will give you valuable discounts on our services, along with regular uh, newsletter that includes a featured article on software testing and quality and news about what RBCS and its partners are doing. You can follow us on Twitter, we're at RBCS, and on Facebook, we're RBCS-INC. Do remember to check your email over the next couple of days. You could be the lucky winner of a free e-learning drawing, a free e-learning course from RBCS, and you were registered simply by attending this free event. Um, as I said, check out the basic, advanced, and digital libraries. 
We have templates and articles and recordings of these webinars um, out there. Um, you can also subscribe to the RBCS channel on YouTube to uh, see these recorded webinars uh, when they come out. We offer these free resources as a service to the software testing community because at RBCS we are a not just for profit company. This concludes the webinar. Thanks to everyone for joining us today and look forward to seeing you on future webinars.